Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. And this is another episode in our ongoing series about stars during times of war or... Star Wars. In the 1950s, Marilyn Monroe embodied a male fantasy of a woman who gave freely of herself, particularly of her body, and asked for nothing in return. Her blonde bombshell persona, at once dizzy and fizzy, but also tragically vulnerable, would seem to be a complete 180 from the can-do femininity of the World War II era, epitomized by Rosie the Riveter. But in fact, before she was famous, Marilyn Monroe was Rosie the Riveter. At age 18, with her husband off in the Merchant Marines, Monroe went to work at an airplane parts factory. And it was there that she was discovered, in a roundabout way thanks to Ronald Reagan. In this episode, we'll explore how Marilyn became Marilyn by tracing the former Norma Jean Baker through her troubled childhood, the war years, her early struggles to get a foothold in Hollywood, and the nude photo scandal, which, in cementing her stardom, announced Marilyn Monroe as an icon ahead of her time. We'll see how the future Marilyn's experiences married those of other American women and the culture at large in the post-war decade, and we'll see how her projection of vulnerability and even victimhood could be seen as not just a show of strength, but an almost radical bait-and-switch, at least up to a point. Join us, won't you, for the story of how Marilyn Monroe became Marilyn Monroe. Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. She was born to Gladys Baker on June 1st, 1926. Baker was Gladys's first married name. Her second husband's last name had been Mordenson, although both marriages were short-lived. Her maiden name was Monroe. Baby Norma Jean's paternity was unclear. At the time of conception, Gladys was living with her best girlfriend, a fellow film splicer named Grace McKee, and had been separated from her second husband for 10 months. The most frequently told story is that Gladys had an affair with her boss at the film lab where she worked, and that the boss dropped her as soon as she told him that she was expecting. Perhaps because this man refused contact with Marilyn even after she was famous, 
There are Maryland biographers who insist that Gladys had no idea who the father was because she and Grace were, to be charitable, living the flapper lifestyle. In any case, to Norma Jean, the true identity of her father would forever be a mystery. Her school documents indicate that she used the names Baker and Mordenson interchangeably. Gladys kept a picture of a mustachioed man, either the film lab boss or another ex-boyfriend, and allowed her daughter to believe that this mystery man was her father. Later in childhood, Norma Jean would decide that the man in the photo looked like Clark Gable, and she started telling other kids at school that Gable was her father. She went looking to Hollywood to fill the father-shaped hole in her life. And in turn, this fundamental lack was twisted by Hollywood into a kind of fetish quality. A girl with no father, no legitimate patriarchal line, no name even, became, as Marilyn Monroe, a blank slate, a white sheet, for the projection of fantasies. The fantasies of men, and her own fantasies, of using the adoration of men to replace the father that she never had. As a negative cutter working at film labs and studios, Gladys spent long days looking at frames of stars like Gloria Swanson and Norma Talmadge, who was probably Norma Jean's namesake, repeated in what seemed like infinite loops. Because she would lose her job if she stayed home with her baby, she arranged to have Norma Jean boarded with foster parents, a highly religious couple who told little Norma Jean that movies were a product of the devil. If the world came to an end with you sitting in the movies, her foster mother warned, you'd burn along with all the bad people. When Norma Jean was seven, her mother retrieved her from this foster home and brought the child to live with her and her bestie Grace in a house in Hollywood with a big white grand piano. Gladys and Grace threw parties, and they took Norma Jean to the movies every weekend. The seven-year-old who had spent her entire life thus far raised by devout churchgoers quickly became convinced that her mother, who liked to drink and liked to watch movies, was going to hell. But then she fell in love with Jean Harlow. Gladys and Grace took Norma Jean to see the original Blonde Bombshell in the Art Deco screwball comedy Dinner at Eight, and Harlow quickly became this unconventional family's chief obsession. Over the next few years, Grace would first remake herself in Harlow's image, dyeing her hair platinum blonde, and then she'd set to work molding Gladys's daughter into a second-wave blonde bombshell in the Harlow mold. Grace had the freedom to do such molding because in short time, Norma Jean's actual mother was absent. In 1934, Gladys had what was then described as a nervous breakdown, although psychiatry was so primitive that it's hard to know for sure what was really going on. In any case, Norma Jean's mother was institutionalized, and the little girl spent the rest of her childhood shuttling between at least one orphanage, several foster homes, and various homes of Grace McKee, who eventually became Norma Jean's legal guardian— a situation complicated after Grace married a man 10 years her junior and became Grace Goddard. Even when she couldn't house Norma Jean herself, though, Grace was highly protective of the child and would visit her weekly or even daily, bringing new dresses and eventually makeup, and all the while keeping hope alive in this oft-abandoned little girl's hearts that all hardships would be forgotten 
If Hollywood were just to recognize Norma Jean, the next great Hollywood blonde after Jean Harlow, who died in 1937 when Norma Jean was 11. Though accounts vary, at some point, in some foster home, probably at the age of eight or nine, Norma Jean was molested. In one account, the incident happened in a foster home where there was an older male boarder. In another, the perpetrator was a cousin. In another, it was the new husband of Grace Goddard. In all versions of the story, little Norma Jean immediately told her current foster mother what had happened, and the foster mother not only didn't believe her, but she slapped the child for causing trouble. Now we know that little girls tend not to lie about these sorts of things. But then, the victim bore the burden of proof almost always. By the time she started talking publicly about this abuse, 20 years later, Marilyn had already adopted the persona of dumb blonde gold-digging party girl. It was maybe because she was so good at playing that role, so deft at convincing us that she was born to be sexually compliant, that many of Marilyn's biographers and interviewers chose to cast doubt on her allegations of abuse, seizing on the discrepancies between the stories, rather than hooking onto the signs of trauma that were everywhere for an eye trained to look for it. At that point, no one was able to see that so many of the things that made Marilyn Marilyn, the actual or implied sexual easiness, the childlike voice and perspective, the lifelong search for male protectors, all of these were, in fact, textbook long-term symptoms of childhood abuse. Norma Jean spent her early teen years living with Anna Lower, an elderly aunt of Grace's who, Marilyn later remembered, provided the closest thing to traditional mother love that the girl ever had. But Aunt Anna didn't have a lot of spare cash. So when Norma Jean began to develop womanly curves, there was no money for new clothes. At 13, she'd walked to school down the streets of West Los Angeles in a too tight skirt and blouse, and would attract the kind of attention that another preteen might recoil from. But the future Marilyn Monroe claimed, It was just sheer pleasure. Every fellow honked his horn. You know, workers driving to work, waving. And I'd wave back. The world became friendly. She became obsessed with attracting this kind of friendly attention through perfecting her appearance spending hours before school in the morning and at school in the bathroom fussing with her hair and makeup. She sought attention from boys and got it. But even her slut-shamiest biographers basically agree that Norma Jean's teenage flirtations were chaste. Until the last one. Norma Jean started 10th grade in the fall of 1941. She was living with Grace and her family in Van Nuys, and Grace soon contrived to play matchmaker, fixing the 15-year-old girl up with the son of a neighbor. In late 1941, 20-year-old Jim Doherty was working at the local Lockheed factory and biding time until the U.S. entered World War II, at which point he'd enlist. All that fall, Norma Jean would ask for rides from Jim, and he complied, but it wasn't a mutual infatuation. He was highly aware of the five-year difference in their ages. And then, just after Pearl Harbor, 
Grace asked Jim to be a good sport and accompany Norma Jean to a Christmas dance. He agreed, and on the dance floor that night, with this curvaceous 15-year-old pressed against him, Jim Doherty fell in something like love. Something like it. A couple of weeks later, Grace's husband was offered a job in West Virginia, and the family prepared to move. But the husband didn't want to bring Norma Jean with them. As her legal guardian, Grace was required to look after the teenager's welfare, or else send her back to the orphanage. So Grace came up with a plan. Why didn't Norma Jean just get married? To Jim! At not quite 16 and feeling very much like a child, Norma Jean protested that she was too young. Grace responded, Only in years. When she asked Grace, in the presence of Jim and his mother, if it would be possible for them to marry and not have sex, Grace said, Don't worry, you'll learn. So, Norma Jean dropped out of high school, and on June 19, 1942, less than three weeks after her 16th birthday, she and Jim Doherty were married. Jim would later say that he would have had no intention of marrying her had the circumstances been different. But he figured he'd be going to war soon, and who knows what would happen. At least he could give a nice, pretty girl a home for the time being. He probably had no idea that he was also giving Norma Jean a biographical parallel to her idol, Jean Harlow, who had also dropped out of school to marry a 21-year-old man when she was 16. Norma Jean spent two years trying to be a housewife with exceedingly mixed results. She was both desperately dependent on Jim financially and emotionally, and confused. Why did Grace push her into this situation, she wondered. How was this going to help her become Jean Harlow? And Jim didn't respond well to being his child bride's only source of comfort in the world. He'd stay out late, drinking with his friends. It got to the point where his buddies were going off to war, and he wanted to join them. Norma Jean begged him not to go, and in the interest of compromise, instead of enlisting for combat, Jim joined the Merchant Marines. Though not part of the armed forces and not authorized to engage in battle, the Merchant Marines were deployed during times of war to go into war zones, delivering supplies and transporting soldiers. In fact, though it was underreported at the time, the Merchant Marines suffered more casualties in World War II than any individual branch of the armed services. So this was actually probably the worst-case scenario. If Jim came home in one piece, he wouldn't be considered a hero, and there was a decent chance that he wouldn't come home in one piece. The good news was, at first, he was stationed on Catalina Island, visible with the naked eye from downtown Los Angeles, and his wife was able to live with him on base. But then he was ordered to sail to Shanghai. With her husband's future uncertain, Norma Jean wanted to get pregnant before Jim shipped out, but her husband told her they'd have plenty of time for that when he returned. With her husband away, Norma Jean went to work at an airplane parts factory in Burbank, owned by the actor Reginald Denny. 
Denny was a model airplane enthusiast who had invented and sold to the U.S. Army and Navy a product called Radio Plane OQ-2. Designed initially to provide a moving target for training exercises, the radio plane became known as the first mass-produced unarmed aerial vehicle, or what we now call drones. Denny was impressed with the quality of talent working in his factory, and one day he told a friend of his, the captain who ran the Army's first motion picture unit, that he should really send over a photographer to snap some shots of these girls, who had the kind of looks what did wonders for boosting morale. That captain friend of Denny's was Ronald Reagan, and he sent Private David Conover to Denny's factory with the assignment to take pictures of girls for a spread in Yank Magazine, a publication written by and for enlisted men, which became the most read periodical in U.S. military history. Despite the double entendre potential of its name, Yank was not pornography, although it did include a cheesecakey pinup in each issue. When Conover got to the factory, he was immediately taken with Norma Jean, who at that point was 18, auburn-haired, and had just the right kind of girl-next-door quality that Conover, on orders from Reagan, was looking for. Using color film, Conover snapped a few shots of Norma Jean poised to screw a propeller onto a radio plane. Then he asked her if he could take a few quote-unquote sweater pictures of Norma Jean on her lunch break. She was flattered. No one had ever wanted to take her picture before. No one had ever singled her out for a good reason before. After the photos were published in Yank, Conover was deluged with requests from photographer friends who wanted the hookup with Norma Jean. Ironically, considering what she'd come to represent in terms of artificial, unattainable beauty, in 1944, the future Marilyn Monroe was coveted by photographers for her quote-unquote natural look. Her beautiful smile was easily misinterpreted as a sign that she was easily pleased. In fact, she was amused. As she said later in life, Sometimes modeling seems so phony and fake. I just had to laugh. They thought that was great. They had a great smile from you. And they just snapped away. There was so much modeling work in the offering that soon Norma Jean quit Radio Plane and signed up with the Blue Book Modeling Agency, where her fees for classes and things like comportment and posture were deducted from her modeling earnings. So the $10 a day she made during her first gig as a hostess at a trade show all went back to the agency. But the rate itself was a lot better than the $20 a week she made at Radio Plane working 60-hour weeks. And the work was exciting. On each shoot, she'd pester the photographer with questions about lenses and lighting and what she could do with her poses and her makeup to make each image perfect. Soon enough, the head of the modeling agency, the improbably named Emmeline Snively, told Norma that if she really wanted to work more, she was going to have to bleach her hair. Brunettes could only be photographed a limited number of ways. A blonde could be anything. Given Norma Jean's aspirations and the coaching she had received towards the ideal of Jean Harlow, it's sort of a surprise she waited so long to go the platinum route. It's less of a surprise that when Jim Doherty returned to Los Angeles on leave, 
he no longer recognized his wife. When Jim Doherty came ashore in December 1945 after 18 months at sea, his newly blonde wife was an hour late to pick him up. The attentive, desperate-to-please girl he had left behind had turned into a busy working woman who was so overbooked on modeling jobs over the two weeks of Jim's leave that husband and wife barely saw each other for two nights. Norma Jean even spent a weekend away just before Christmas with a male photographer on assignment. This was not the kind of marriage that Jim had signed up for. And to be fair, he had some legitimate reason to worry. It was apparently commonplace for Norma Jean to thank a photographer with sexual favors. As Marilyn later explained, When I started modeling, it was like part of the job. All the girls did it. And if you didn't go along, there were 25 girls who would. Now, it's important to note that maybe more than any other star, Marilyn Monroe's biographers tend to pick and choose from the long-deceased actress's own statements, declaring that some are obvious lies, but believing others to be confessional, depending on the biographer's overall agenda. There's a prevalent legend that Marilyn loved the camera so much that she would become sexually excited while posing, and that this accounted for her alleged tendency to go to bed with the man behind the camera. As we'll see later in our story, there were times when Marilyn would use interviews to try to downplay her own agency in terms of her persona as a near-nymphomaniac, to protest that she had to do X sexually provocative thing in order to further her goals of serious acting artistry, and that she didn't really mean it. And maybe some of that was a case of the lady protesting too much, although it certainly seems more credible than some of the things that Marilyn's biographers do take at face value, such as hubba hubba come-ons like, I'm only comfortable when I'm naked. That said, I have no reason to doubt her claim that in the 1940s, sexual coercion was endemic to the culture of freelance pinup posing. It was certainly endemic to the Hollywood casting process. In any case, when Norma Jean returned from her business trip, Jim demanded that she make a choice. She could either have a career or she could be his wife. Up to and including par-for-the-course sexual harassment, Norma Jean's experience of World War II was fairly typical of what we could call the Rosie the Riveter paradox. Women were expected to go to work when men were at war, and in so doing, they learned what it felt like to exchange their own labor for a paycheck, and they learned what it felt like to not be dependent on a man for all of their material needs. Then, having had that experience, at the end of the war, they were expected to revert to their previous roles, often as housewives with no real purpose outside of the home. In some cases, the genie couldn't be put back in the bottle. The woman didn't want to go back in time, back to a life of comparatively few freedoms, a life of comfort, perhaps, but also one of servitude. Once they had been given a chance to have an identity outside the home, they couldn't just give it up. And this is exactly what happened to Norma Jean. She didn't care much about her job at Radio Plane, but the modeling career it afforded her gave her that opportunity to find herself for the first time in her life. 
Ironically, the thing that she became so good at projecting at the camera was the idea of a woman who did want to go back in time, who could activate male fantasies of women who had no interest in independence, who only wanted to give and receive love and affection. If these weren't insurmountable issues in the Doherty marriage, there was also the fact that Doherty's mom didn't approve of Norma Jean's modeling and eventually kicked her out of the Doherty family house. Plus, Miss Snively at the modeling agency warned Norma Jean that no studio would want to hire a married actress who was liable to get pregnant at any time, rendering herself unemployable. Grace agreed with this, and she arranged for Norma Jean to stay with another aunt of hers in Las Vegas. Jim Doherty was in Shanghai in May 1946 when he got a letter from a lawyer informing him that his wife was filing for divorce. In her suit, Norma Jean alleged cruelty, and when asked to elaborate on this claim in court, she said, Well, in the first place, my husband didn't support me, and he objected to my working criticized me for it, and he also had a bad temper and would fly into rages, and he left me on three different occasions and criticized me and embarrassed me in front of my friends, and he didn't try to make a home for me. Norma Jean was now free to throw herself into her work, and before her divorce was even final, her first shot at movie stardom came along via men associated with Jean Harlow's own big break. Like Harlow, Norma Jean's blonde beauty caught Hollywood's most prolific eye for her kind of talent, Howard Hughes. The head of RKO in the mid-40s, Hughes spotted one of the 33 magazines that had published her freelance photos on their cover, and he told his flunkies to find this broad and give her a screen test. Norma Jean's modeling agent used Hughes's interest as leverage to get her client a meeting with 20th Century Fox talent scout Ben Lyon, who had acted alongside Harlow in Howard Hughes's Hell's Angels over a decade earlier. Well familiar with Hughes's taste and afraid of losing a hot prospect to his former director, Lyon agreed to test Norma Jean and put one of his best cinematographers, George Shamroy, on the job. When Shamroy got the film back from the session, he was stunned. Even that early, there was something about this woman that was invisible to the naked eye that a camera could capture. Shamroy would later say that the film gave him a chill, and that it was clear to him that Norma Jean had something that he hadn't seen in years. Surely not since Jean Harlow, and maybe not since the silent era. She was, he would say, sex on a piece of film. So 20th Century Fox signed Norma Jean to a standard starlet contract on the condition that she find herself a new name. For a surname, Norma Jean quickly picked Monroe, her mother's maiden name and the only family name she was sure she could accurately embrace as her own. Norma Monroe was deemed too difficult to say, so Ben Lyon was like, got anything else in that family tree of yours? Norma started explaining her sad, confused heritage, and while she was talking, Lyon zoned out and started thinking about another blonde-haired, blue-eyed actress, one to whom he had been engaged years before, Marilyn Miller. I've got it, Lyon concluded. You're Marilyn. And that was that. 
just as she had been unusually inquisitive about modeling, the new Marilyn Monroe was an apt pupil of filmmaking. She started going to every studio screening she could. She'd haunt the wardrobe department and ask questions about lighting and cameras to anyone who'd stop and chat. She had learned how to use her looks to get in the door, but she didn't want to just be a sex object. Learning how to act in movies was, as she'd write later, her only ambition. I didn't want anything else. Not men, not money, not love. Just the ability to act. With the arc lights on me and the camera pointed at me, I suddenly knew myself. But all Fox wanted to do was take still photos of her and send her out on dumb promo assignments. Her contract with the studio lapsed, as did a subsequent deal with Columbia. She filled up a couple of years studying at the Actors Lab, a Los Angeles-based spinoff of the group theater, paying for her classes through the largesse of actor John Carroll and his MGM exec wife Lucille Ryman, who took pity on the former Norma Jean when she admitted that she sometimes had sex with strangers in order to eat. Obsessed with her body, she regularly worked out with weights and jogged, activities much more commonly practiced by men than women at the time. She had an affair with Joe Shank, an executive producer at Fox, who couldn't give her a job himself but did introduce her to Columbia's Harry Cohn. She fell in love with Fred Carger, a music director at Columbia, who wouldn't leave his wife, but he did pay to have Marilyn's overbite fixed. She spent a week shacked up at the Chateau Marmont with a photographer named Milton Green, who would become one of her closest advisors. And finally, she became the mistress of Johnny Hyde, one of the most powerful agents in Hollywood and the head of the William Morris Agency. Johnny Hyde did leave his wife. He was in his mid-50s and plagued with heart problems, which he knew would kill him sooner rather than later, and he begged Marilyn to marry him. He wanted to spend his last days with her, and in return, he'd make sure she inherited his entire estate. But Marilyn refused. She loved Johnny as a father, and she knew that if she became Mrs. Hyde, no one would ever take her seriously as Marilyn Monroe. But she did let Johnny take her to a plastic surgeon, who removed a small bump from her nose and inserted a disc of silicone in her jaw to soften her appearance before the camera turning her face into a big, happy cloud. These relationships with older men helped Marilyn get one or two bit parts in bad movies, and through their sponsorship of her plastic surgery, helped to invent the soon-to-be indelible Marilyn image. But she couldn't get to the next level. In February 1949, Johnny got Marilyn a walk-on part in a Marx Brothers movie, but she was broke, and because movie work wasn't pouring in, she had to model in order to pay off debts. In May, Tom Kelly, a photographer whom Marilyn had met at the scene of a minor traffic accident, told Marilyn he could use her in a beer campaign. When that turned out all right, Kelly called Marilyn and asked if she'd be willing to pose for a tasteful nude for an art calendar. In fact, that very week, she was in need of $50 in order to make the payment, that would keep her car from being repossessed. So even though she had turned down offers to be photographed nude in the past, this time, Marilyn agreed. She signed the release form as Mona Monroe. The shoot was, by all accounts, highly professional. Kelly's wife was there. And when it was over, Marilyn took the $50, and she never saw Kelly again. 
1949, when these soon-to-become-infamous nude photos were taken, the former Norma Jean Baker wouldn't have had any realistic reason to believe that in three years she would become one of the biggest female stars in the world. When she posed for Tom Kelly, her ambitions may have been big, but she was literally living hand-to-mouth. She couldn't even look beyond the current day to see a clear picture of how she'd make her dreams of stardom come true. And even from our vantage point, there is no clear picture of what happened next. It's all fuzzy, clouded by many, many layers of studio-invented fantasy. Here's more or less what we do know. In mid-1949, Marilyn went on a personal appearance tour to promote the Marx Brothers movie Love Happy, and she was subsequently cast in two legitimately great films of 1950, John Huston's The Asphalt Jungle and Joe Mankiewicz's All About Eve. She was re-signed as a contract player by Fox as a favor to Johnny Hyde around the time of his death, and for the first time in her career, she started attracting a lot of fan mail. Here's where things start to become disputed. Many who have written about Marilyn have suggested that she languished until the asphalt jungle and all about Eve, and that, alone or together, it was these two films that turned her from a starlet into a legitimate star. A take which gives either or both of these male auteurs credit for finally spotting what Marilyn could do. In fact, both of those parts were really small, and Houston, at least, was virtually blackmailed into casting Marilyn. He owed her old benefactor Lucille Ryman a debt related to his horses, and giving Monroe the part of Angela in the Asphalt Jungle was how the director and the MGM exec settled up. Initially, to the studios, the media, and anyone else who had the power to give Marilyn higher-profile work or to generally take her more seriously, her work in these movies didn't make much of an impression. As late as 1950, Marilyn had so little to do on the acting front that she had time to enroll as a student at UCLA, studying literature. After all of this, it was a confluence of mostly off-screen events that took place over the next couple of years that cemented Marilyn's stardom and allowed her to jump to the next level as a full-fledged movie star. Around this time, photo magazines were booming, in part thanks to the new popularity of smaller, more portable cameras that had come into use during World War II. There was an endless demand for photos of pretty girls in these magazines, and this started to work in Marilyn's favor. One of the four movies Marilyn filmed in 1951 was the Fritz Lang drama Clash by Night, in which Marilyn had a supporting role behind female lead Barbara Stanwyck. When visiting journalists and photographers came to the set, they didn't want to talk to the well-established Stanwyck. They wanted to talk to, as they so delicately put it, the girl with the big tits. For whatever reason, Clash by Night convinced Fox to give Marilyn her first starring role as a mentally disturbed babysitter in the thriller Don't Bother to Knock. Two more dumb blonde bit parts followed, but already by mid-1952, Marilyn was getting a kind of press uncommensurate with the quality of roles she was playing. The media frenzy surrounding her was kicked into a previously unfathomable high gear when she started dating Joe DiMaggio, who around the time he retired from the Yankees in late 1951 had seen a photograph of Marilyn in a short baseball dress and had demanded to meet her. 
They were officially an item as of February 1952, when he was photographed visiting her on the set of the Howard Hawks film Monkey Business. And then, in March, came the scandal that could have killed Marilyn's career. And instead, it probably made it. The nude photograph that Marilyn had posed for in 1949 had become such a hit in a 1951 calendar that it was reprinted in the 1952 version. And after a year of circulating, as Marilyn's clothed profile became increasingly more visible, rumors started to swirl that there was a striking similarity between the calendar girl and Fox's hottest new starlet. Finally, the buzz had become too loud to ignore. Marilyn was called before a group of assembled Fox executives, shown the calendar, and asked, point blank, is this you? She said it was, and that she was embarrassed. But only because she didn't think that Kelly had gotten her best angle. This was a full 20 years after the nude scene in Ecstasy that had made Hedy Lamarr internationally notorious. But that was different. That had happened in another country. And most American moviegoers had only heard about it and not seen it. There had never before been recent nude photographs widely available of a movie star just as she was becoming a movie star. And these photographs were definitely widely available. Given the types and sizes of roles Marilyn had mostly been playing up to that point, it's conceivable that many American men had seen her naked before they recognized her clothed on screen. Something had to be done, and when Fox's publicist scheduled an interview between Marilyn and a friendly journalist named Aileen Mosby, it was the actress who decided how to play it. As an otherwise boilerplate interview was concluding, Marilyn asked if she could talk to Mosby privately. When they were alone, she turned on the waterworks. The rumors were true, the blonde admitted. It was her, naked in that art calendar. She had shot the photo years ago when she had no money. There wasn't anything shameful about it at all. The photographer's wife was there, for goodness sakes. But now, everyone's telling her it's going to end her career. I need your advice, Marilyn said. They want me to deny it's me, but I can't lie. What shall I do? Of course, Mosby published this off-the-record portion of the conversation as the lead, just as Marilyn knew she would. And the response from the general public wasn't condemnation. It was empathy. Just like that, Marilyn was on the cover of every national newspaper. Not for her naked body, or not just for her naked body, but also for her girlish honesty and humble beginnings. Just like that, well via many, many interviews over the course of several months, Marilyn Monroe turned herself into a sex goddess for the people. By June, Fox had cast her in two of what would be her most memorable films, Niagara and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And by the fall of 1953, when Hugh Hefner ran the Kelly nudes in the debut issue of Playboy magazine, Marilyn Monroe was more than a movie star. She was well on her way to becoming the era's definitive female icon. Her handling of the nude photo scandal served as the final stitch in the sewn-on costume that was Norma Jean's metamorphosis into Marilyn Monroe. 
it perfectly put across the key element of her persona, described by Laurence Olivier as her ability to, quote, suggest one moment that she is the naughtiest little thing, and the next that she's perfectly innocent. This was her greatest feat as an actress. She sensed that her damage, her appearance of frailty, could become a strength. It could help her get what she wanted. To a point. Her openness when it came to her troubled past, her experience of things like sexual abuse and quasi or actual prostitution, was absolutely revolutionary. And some would say her willingness to share these things was a kind of manipulation or else a sign that she was too stupid to know better. Some people seem to think that both of those things could be true, without realizing that such calculation and such vacuity would be unlikely to exist simultaneously. It would become clear in the years and decades after Marilyn's death in 1962 that in presenting a model of what certain kinds of uniquely female damage looked like, she was telling millions of other women that they weren't the only ones who had gone through what they had gone through, that they weren't alone. As is too often the case, the truly radical impact of Marilyn Monroe's stardom wasn't apparent until it was too late. In her lifetime, her projection of vulnerability did make her a star, but it kept her from really becoming an actress. The fact that she could never be seen as anything but as her first cinematographer put it, sex on a piece of film, was a tragedy. But at least she had a sense of humor about it. As she wrote in her unpublished autobiography, Hollywood's a place where they'll pay you a thousand dollars for a kiss and fifty cents for your soul. I know, because I turned down the first offer often enough and held out for the fifty cents. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This week's episode was written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. And please follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night.